You're listening to City Church. What we like to do sometimes in these longer series is uh, it'll be eight weeks total, but we like to take a little break in the middle, kind of refresh your mind and uh, sort of disengage for a little bit from the book of Philippians so we can go back with some fresh thinking and really engage that material effectively next week. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the weeks I get to just receive today, so I'm really excited about that. And you guys are going to be incredibly blessed. Um, I was really, really encouraged for a service, and uh, just God really spoke to me in a powerful way, and I think that you're going to really receive from Jesus in a powerful way. You get to hear from someone I consider one of the uh, really gifted communicators that I've ever met, and uh, not just a gifted communicator, but has a heart for Jesus that is infectious, that you will catch within just a few minutes. And so um, he's an elder here, asked uh, Roger to speak. And so I want you to give just a huge round of applause for Roger Andrews as he comes. Let's just encourage him and, uh, and give him some love as he comes. Love you. I'm going to get out of the way. All right. <clears throat> I'm never quite sure what to say to Justin's introductions. Um, anything he said that's true, it's pure grace, pure grace. Um, I think anytime someone stands up here to bring God's message, you should have a little of the backstory. You should know a little bit about that person. Uh, so just very briefly, a little bit about me and my family. Um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, as did my wife. My dad is here today as well. Uh, Washington State is where we hail from. Deb and I met in healthcare a long time ago. Um, I'm a pharmacist, Deb's medical assistant. Years later, God called me out of that and back to Bible college, and then I went on to uh, be lead pastor in churches uh, for over 10 years in Montana, and most recently in Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, come on, somebody's got to suffer for Jesus in Hawaii. It's okay. Um, so yeah, a real blessing. Um, and I'll share a little bit about what we do currently, but I, I want to interject so I don't forget, because I think this is really important. Um, we are all a part of something very special here. And what we do, uh, we travel all over the world. And Deb and I find ourselves in churches all over the place. We'll be in Africa two Sundays from now. Um, and we meet wonderful people. And there's good churches out there. But I, I encounter a lot of churches that uh, they're just dabbling in Christianity. They're not really serious about their walk and their journey. Um, but in my perspective, this is the real deal. And I'm so glad. Yeah, let's, I agree. <clears throat> Yeah, and I want to even applaud. I want to thank those that responded and were obedient to God's call to start City Church. So for Justin and Chrissy and the rest of the team, um, we are benefiting today because of their obedience. They're responding really to what God said. Here's your purpose. So uh, let's thank them as well. I'm very thankful. Um, seven years ago, uh, I trans- transitioned out of church leadership uh, to work full-time as a missionary which is what I do today with my wife. We work for an organization called Youth with a Mission. Uh, YWAM is a group of about 25,000 full-time missionaries. We provide pastoral care for people uh, around the globe. And really our heartbeat, I guess our purest calling these days is we want to see people uh, stay healthy and continue to live out whatever God's calling on their life is, that they would, they would truly live it out and understand their purpose and continue to walk in it, abiding deeply with Jesus so they can continue to serve him in a powerful way. Uh, so that's a little bit about what we're about. I had several people come after the service and first service say, oh, I want to talk to you about that. And Deb and I are always glad to get to, together for coffee and, and just explore together what God might be doing in your life. Um, but I think that's a good transition to a question I want to pose and have you chew on for a little bit. And the question for you really is, what are you living for?
And to help you chew on it, I want to use a little bit of a visual. These kind of things help me. I'm very visual. Um, so what I've got here is a rope. And I want you to imagine that this rope uh, goes on off of the platform, out the door, and continues to circle the globe a few times, and then it goes off out into space and just goes on forever and ever. And what I want you to picture that that represents for you is a timeline of your existence. There's this rope that keeps going. That's really what our lives are. We were purposed to live forever. And you see this little red part right here. This represents your life here on earth. We have just a little window that we live out these years on earth and then comes the rest of this off into eternity. And what blows me away is that so many people today and perhaps even for some of you here today, all you think about is this little red part. You get consumed with things in your day and you think, okay, I'm going to do this and this and I'm going to save, save, save and I'm going to do all these things so that I can enjoy this little part right here. But what about, what about all this? What about all that? We've been studying a spiritual giant in the life of Paul. He knew what it meant to keep eternity in his sight. To live as Christ, to die as gain, he said. Paul knew that one day he would pass through this point right here and he would pass off into the rest of eternity. So I'm wondering for you, what, what is it you're thinking today? I've had so many people say, as they learn more of our story, they say, I can't believe you made this decision because it's going to impact this. And I say, no, 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 I, I'm not crazy because what I'm doing here impacts all of this. But so many people today consumed with possessions and pleasure, power, all the things here. And they're going to get to the end of life or we don't even realize our life could end tomorrow. And what are you going to do about the rest of this? So that's what I want us to think a little bit about today. What are you living for? Let's pray about that, and we'll get into God's Word and see what He has to say to us. Lord, thank You for Your Word. I pray today that You speak powerfully to us through, through the Word, Lord. It's all about You. Your Word transforms. It is life itself. And so, Lord, open our hearts. I pray that you speak to us. You have something for every single person in here today, myself included. So speak to us, Lord, today. We're here. We're here. In Jesus' name. Well, I think uh, in our country um, over the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of attention at times riveted upon stories of athletes, sports stars who have seemed to have it all, but whose very lives became unraveled due to incredible immorality. O.J. Simpson, football star, he was accused of brutally murdering his ex-wife and her boyfriend. Eric Hernandez of the New England Patriots, recently charged with three murders. Oscar Pistorius, the infamous Blade Runner, is on trial right now for the murder of his girlfriend. Tiger Woods, golf legend, came out he was having affairs with multiple women. His marriage fell apart and his career has never really been the same since. And it's not just sports stars, it, it is politicians, it's CEOs, affairs exposed, prostitution, obscene photos texted to women. Now I want to be sensitive to the fact that in our culture, our society, a person's innocent until they're proven guilty and some of these examples haven't gone to trial yet. 
But I think for all of us, it's disturbing to learn details of explosive anger and fits of rage and to find out that these acts of immorality really expose a private life that's considerably different than the positive public image that many of us buy into. And I think the events surrounding these very public figures start us off this morning with two important spiritual lessons. And the first really is the frightening potential for evil that's in the heart of every person. When an unknown psychopath goes out and murders people, we can dismiss that as somebody who is not quite right of mind or someone that's very different than ourselves. But when a well-known person murders his wife or cheats on his wife or sends obscene material on the Internet, then that doesn't seem possible because they seem so nice and so much like us. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because the potential for wicked behavior in all of us exists, exists right in our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Oswald Chambers, in his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, wrote, We have to recognize sin as a fact, not a defect. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. If sin rules, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin will be killed. You see, if sin is left unrestrained in us, we're all capable of horrendous acts. And I think the second lesson from these very public examples I gave is the absolute futility of a life without God. There has to be more. The media reports Tiger Woods was making more than $20 million a year just in his endorsements from Nike. He's the first professional athlete who made over a billion dollars in his career. He has a home valued at $50 million, a yacht, $20 million. But all that was not enough to produce lasting happiness. His life really epitomized it. It was a culmination of what we call the American dream. Maybe your dream too. Go to college, become famous, get a high-paying job, buy whatever you want, make lots of money, be happy. But when will we come to our senses and realize there's no profit in the life of anyone who may gain the whole world yet loses his own soul? Everything the world has to offer you will not satisfy the deep hunger in your heart. So I thought it'd be helpful today for us to review the book of Ecclesiastes. I think this will remind us of the real purpose of life and reaffirm our commitment to the values that matter most, those eternal values. So I want to encourage you to fasten your seatbelt. We are going to cover a lot of text. Okay, most of it will be on the screen up here. Um, in fact, turn to the person next to you and say, got your seatbelt on? Go ahead and do that. Good. All right. I've got mine on. All right. Now, Ecclesiastes, if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of Solomon's diary for the pursuit of meaning in life. And Solomon was in a position to, to really taste every morsel that this world has to offer. And then by the end of the book, he draws a conclusion that we need to think about and underscore. So I'm going to survey the book. I'm going to divide it in three sections. We're going to talk about his pessimism, his pursuits, and then finally his ultimate purpose that he discovered in God. So the book begins with Solomon's utter pessimism. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now the word meaningless appears 27 times in Ecclesiastes, only appears three other times in the rest of the Bible. Solomon's saying life's futile. King James says it's vanity. Verses 3 and 4 go on. What does a man profit from his labor or gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. 
Man's born, he lives, he dies, he's forgotten about. In verses 5 to 7, Solomon says, All nature demonstrates the same meaninglessness about life. Sun rises, the sun sets, hurries back to where it rises. Wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams came from, there they return again. Living Bible paraphrases verse 9. History merely repeats itself. Nothing's truly new. It's all been done or said before. Now, obviously, Solomon was not a graduate of Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking course. <laughs> okay? he's, he's pretty low. He's very cynical. He's very negative. He's as negative as a Chicago Cubs fan. If you're a Cubs fan, I'm sorry. But he's not alone. There's many people today that same, make these same kind of pessimistic observations about life. Dr. Jack Kevorkian passed away a few years ago. He was known as Dr. Death. He made a name for himself assisting people to commit suicide. He believed that life could reach such a low point of futility uh, that the only way to go was to kill yourself. Politicians today in our country are very pessimistic, as you Watch the news, read the papers. Everything seems to be in crisis. There's a health care crisis. We have a nuclear crisis, a homeless crisis. We have a foreign policy crisis. Not a lot of optimism coming out of Washington. Music, a lot of negative thinking and pessimism. Here's some titles, actual songs as examples. My generation, Comfortably Numb, Pink Floyd. I don't care anymore, Phil Collins. Life is a lemon and I want my money back meatloaf not making these up die young Keisha so cynical so pessimistic and negative and it's not just rock songs Do you ever listen to country western music very depressing <laughs> my wife just ran off with my best friend and boy do I miss him <laughs> Merle Haggard saying I think I'll just stay here and drink Literature, books, saturated with pessimism. H.L. Mencken said, man is just a sick fly on a dizzy wheel. John Paul Sark's philosopher evaluated man's problems and summed it up in a two-word title, no exit. Well, some people would say, well, that's, that's life, that's, uh, that's realistic. Well, maybe so, but you see, people hear these songs and they observe the politicians, they read the headlines, and they start to conclude life is the pits, it's... All meaningless, just like Solomon said. I once saw a message painted on the side of a school building, and it said, tomorrow will be canceled for lack of interest. All meaningless. But how different from the rest of Scripture that says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But Solomon was pessimistic. Well, the second section, as we go through the book, deals with Solomon's various pursuits to find meaning. Verse 17, chapter 1, he begins by focusing on education. He says, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. Solomon, one of the most brilliant people who ever lived, we still use that phrase, the wisdom of Solomon. In 1 Kings, it says God gave Solomon great wisdom and great insight. Spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. 
He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop. He taught about animals, birds, reptiles, fish. Men of all nations came to seek out Solomon's wisdom. Solomon was a brilliant author, songwriter, botanist, zoologist, counselor, professor. But all the education and learning that he could get did not produce a satisfying purpose for Solomon. He says in verse 18, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Thirty-six years ago, when I graduated from high school, we were told by teachers and counselors, be sure to get a college education because in 25 years, you probably won't get a job without a college degree. So most of us went to school, but we've discovered why that's an advantage. It certainly doesn't guarantee you a happy marriage, good health, obedient children, even a job in the era of specialization that we live in. Solomon says, with much learning... Apart from God, more grief. Doesn't solve our problems, doesn't. Doesn't restrain the sin nature that's within us. Solomon then goes on and pursues pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Solomon writes, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? He goes on, becomes a connoisseur of wine. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly, yet nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon goes on and becomes a playboy, married 700 wives, 300 concubines, other women living in the palace. See, it's really nothing new for a public leader trying to be a ladies' man. Solomon set the precedent. The beginning of verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. But everything was meaningless. Nothing gained under the sun. I think our country is kind of on a pleasure binge. I I think many people concluded years ago that all the science and education in the world was not going to resolve our problems. So we just kind of try to escape reality through pleasure. We can hardly have a get-together without some kind of alcohol to, to warm up the environment and numb the senses. We spend hours watching situation comedies complete with laugh tracks and there's amusement parks by the score and comedy clubs and on the weekends we gravitate to boating, camping, fishing, golfing, hiking. Now Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a right time for everything. There is a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to relax, enjoy life. But if pleasure is your chief end, if it's your primary goal... If your diversion becomes an obsession, then it will always end with a sense of futility and guilt. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Solomon said, laughter is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? You can escape temporarily through pleasure, but when you come back to reality, it almost seems worse. So having found intellectualism, Hedonism, to be futile, Solomon tries materialism. Chapter 2, beginning verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards, made gardens, parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees, made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees, bought male and female slaves, had others born in the house, also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver, Gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. Somebody's gone through the scriptures and estimated 
Solomon's wealth and calculated that his annual income was over $40 million. $40 million in today's currency a year. Now, much of the world today, the focus is on the material, on possessions. We're in love with our possessions and we're envious of those who have more. We're consumed with our jobs, have to make more so we can buy more. And we tend to evaluate people by how much they make. That was my focus for years. Spent a lot of money, made a lot of money, spent a lot of money. But when that's our focus, we lose the focus in our spiritual journey. So in chapter 5, Solomon denounces the futility of wealth. Verse 10, he says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. Wealth doesn't bring satisfaction. It's like salt water. It just creates a thirst for more. And wealth attracts fickle friends. In verse 11, he says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What benefits are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? more money you have, the more people you hire who drain off the resources, the more people you have around you, you're never sure if they are there because they love you or they love your money. And he says, riches create additional pressure. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he's little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Blue collar worker comes home at the end of the day. He may not have much extra money, may not have anything invested, but he's able to relax and sleep and enjoy himself. The entrepreneur has all kinds of money invested, but he's concerned about the stock market and what government regulation looks like, and he has a hard time ever relaxing. Solomon says riches are unfulfilling because they're temporary. We have to leave them all behind. Verses 13 to 15. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune. Skip down to verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. What good is wealth when you know you're going to die and leave it all behind, he's saying. Billy Graham used to say, you never see a hearse followed by a Brinks armored car. I've done quite a few funerals, and almost always I try to stay at the funeral parlor till the family has said goodbye to their loved one and the casket is closed. And do you know what the funeral director does in the moments before they close the casket for the final time? They remove the ring, earrings, jewelry, pen, whatever it is. They put them in a brown paper envelope and they give it to the next generation. And almost every time I see that, I think of this passage, I brought nothing into the world, and I'm going to take nothing out. Death makes all financial pursuit seem futile. All the money in the world, it's not going to conquer death. Chapter 9, Solomon says, the same destiny overtakes all. Living though they will die, even the memory of them will be forgotten. Back in 1978, when O.J. Simpson was playing for the Buffalo Bills, People Magazine conducted an interview with him, and this is what the magazine reported him saying. I sit in my house in Buffalo, and sometimes I get so lonely, it's unbelievable. Life has been so good to me. I have a great wife, good kids, money, and good health. But I'm lonely and bored. I often wonder why so many rich people commit suicide, but money sure isn't the cure-all. 
Well, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is pretty depressing till we get to the final chapter. And here Solomon sums up what he learns about life's ultimate purpose. He begins in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. He's he's saying, make God the priority in your life, not pleasure, not education, not money, not even relationships. It's silly to pursue those things when they won't satisfy. Begin at a young age to focus on spiritual things that are going to last on into eternity. And those are the values, he says, remembering your creator, that will bring you joy and fulfillment. Because you have hope in death and life becomes more meaningful. Now, you might be like, like myself. I didn't grow up in the church. I gave my life to Christ later in life. But that's all right. Begin now. Focusing on your creator. Learning about him. Focusing on his purpose for your life. And if you do that, you, you can get excited at that point about learning. Not because you believe your ultimate hope is in education, but because you're learning about the one that's the source of all truth. And you can laugh and enjoy pleasure because it's a temporary diversion, not an escape from reality. And you can work to achieve material goods, not to store up for yourself treasure here on earth, but to store it up in heaven and to share it with other people. Peggy Noonan is a presidential speechwriter, and she was quoted as saying this in Forbes magazine. I think we have lost the knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. We've lost somehow a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds, understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, and short one. And now listen to what she says. We are the first generation of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in a higher world, if you only believe in this material world around you, If you believe this is your only chance at happiness, if that's what you believe, then you're not disappointed when the world doesn't give you a good measure of its riches. You are despairing. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? And Solomon says, you want to find fulfillment. Remember your creator when you're young and then all through life, focus on him. Now listen, look at Solomon's final conclusion In verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's it, Solomon? That's it. He's saying, fear God, keep his commandments and do your duty. That's it. He's saying, forget pursuing happiness or you're going to wind up unhappy. Be a servant of God, not indulging yourself. Obey his commands, not just your own instincts. And as a result, as you do your duty, the byproduct in God's grace, you'll be happy. Now, there's a few times, not many, but there's a few times that I wake up on Sunday morning and I don't feel like coming to church. (laughs) Just being honest with you. I think it would make me perfectly happy to tap my wife on the shoulder and say, Deb, have a great time at church, pull the sheet back over my head and go back to sleep. But I don't do that because I'm commanded in Scripture, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So I come to church out of a sense of duty. And on those days when I don't really feel like coming, I don't always feel like smiling at people and shaking hands. 
But I go ahead and do it because I'm commanded in Scripture, be kind one to another. So I smile, shake hands, greet people. And on those same days, I don't necessarily feel like singing. But I go ahead and sing because I'm commanded, sing and make a joyful noise in your heart to the Lord. You see, it's my duty. And you know what happens to me when I do that? By the time I get to the end of the day, when I've come to church and I've greeted people and I've sang, by the end of the day, I feel a whole lot better. A whole lot better than if I'd stayed home and watched Joel Olstein on TV or something. Here's the conclusion, he says. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. When you forget about yourself and you fear God, somehow happiness comes as a byproduct. Don't just do as you feel. Do as you're told. That's what Jesus did, you know. You look at the passage where Satan comes to him while he's in the wilderness. Satan says to him, why don't you turn the stones into bread? You know, you're really hungry. Satisfy your appetite. Jesus says, no, I'm commanded. You don't live by bread alone. You see, he did his duty. Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, hey, just throw yourself off. The angels are going to catch you. You'll be really popular. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm commanded. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. He did his duty. Satan comes again, takes him to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, all this can be yours. You'll be rich if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, it's commanded in Scripture, worship the Lord your God only. And he did his duty all the way to the cross. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Jesus put it this way, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I know what was missing in the life of O.J. Simpson and of Tiger Woods, and of politicians falling into immorality. It's the same thing that was missing in my life 20 years ago. And it's a relationship with Jesus Christ who can satisfy the deepest needs of their heart. For what does it profit a man if he gains a whole world, yet loses his own soul? I have a friend who's a preacher in Texas, and he told me the story of a youth minister in his church who loved his Irish setter dog, Josh. I mean, he loved this dog. He loved it so much the dog had to go in for a procedure at the veterinarian and the youth minister took his pillow and spent the night in the kennel sleeping with his dog. Well, the preacher took note of that and he decided he would use it as an illustration. So one Sunday, he had the youth minister bring the dog to church. He got the dog up on the platform and the preacher threw a ball down the aisle and tried to get him to fetch. He said, fetch, Josh. But Josh wouldn't fetch for religion. So the preacher called up a banker to the platform and he said, you try and get him to fetch. So the banker pulled out some money out of his billfold and waved it in front of the dog and said, fetch, Josh. But Josh wouldn't fetch for money. So then the preacher called up a bodybuilder, great big young man, and the bodybuilder grunted in his ear, fetch. But Josh wouldn't fetch for power. So the preacher got the whole congregation to yell in unison, fetch, fetch, fetch. But Josh wouldn't fetch for pressure. Preacher called a beautiful young woman up to the platform, auburn hair, beautiful skin, very attractive. Seductively, she whispered in the dog's ear. She said, Josh, would you fetch for me? The preacher said he had to admit the dog flinched a little bit. (laughs) But Josh wouldn't fetch for beauty. And then the preacher called up the youth minister. 
the owner of the dog, and had him talk to, talk to Josh. So the youth minister said, fetch Josh. And the dog bolted down the sidewalk, grabbed the, the ball, and brought it back to him. And the preacher asked the congregation the same question I want to ask you as I prepare to close. What are you fetching for today? What are you living for? Now, I'll be honest with you, folks. For years, for many years, I fetched after money and power and pressure for all the wrong things. Worked as a successful pharmacist. I was at the top of my career field, but I was looking for it in all the wrong places. And I, like Solomon, concluded it's only found in one thing, and that's in God. What are you living for today? Where's your focus? Is it on that little red strip, or are you thinking about the rest of your existence? If you're chasing after wrong things today, if you'd like to change your direction and pursue that which will only provide the deepest need of your heart, I want to encourage you to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. He is the only one who can deeply satisfy you. Or maybe you've made that decision and somehow you've lost your focus a little bit. Today's a good day to recommit to those eternal values, the rest of that existence. We're going to have a prayer time in a little bit. I want to encourage you, make a commitment to the things that really matter. Simply say, Lord, your will be done in my life, not mine anymore. I want your will. That's what I'm living for. Let's pray and ask the Lord to put a finger on whatever in our heart right now needs to be identified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your word and for reminding us today that the world can look quite a mess But there's a way out of that. There is real purpose in life and meaning to know you, to walk with you, to understand your will. That's a purpose worth pursuing. It's a life worth living. And it's where real happiness lies. That's what I want to live for. And Jesus, I just pray you continue to highlight for all of us what it is today that you're saying, here's an area where a little bit out of focus. Help us to be focused. And Lord, to pray together and be in this quiet moment and that, to not say that it's unbelievable for us what you did at the cross, but we are so, so grateful. Jesus, we just, it falls so far short. We could never come up with enough words in volumes of books to express our feeling about that, Lord, but we want to say thank you. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for grace. Thank you for providing real happiness in the thing that matters most. It's you. Stir our hearts today, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.